0: One of the attributes or characteristics of God that's revealed in His Word is that He is faithful. God remains true. He endures. He perseveres. He never changes. He's faithful. So based on who He is as a faithful God, He expects faithfulness in the lives of His children. And this morning we're going to look at His message to the church at Philadelphia and how he is expecting them to maintain the faithfulness they've had. And it's really based upon who he is as their faithful God. So today's sermon is titled Faithful, and we'll be in Revelation 3 7 through 13. If you're a guest with us this morning, we're in a series preaching through the book of Revelation. We've been most recently in Revelation chapters 2 through 3, where we're looking at the seven churches that Jesus directly addresses. And so today we're looking at the church of Philadelphia. This is the sixth church addressed by Jesus. And I want to give you a little bit of background on Philadelphia before we go into our first verse today. Philadelphia was about 30 miles southeast of Sardis, and it was founded by the king of Pergamos. So it's kind of related to some of the other cities, churches that we've looked at. And the man that was the king of Pergamos, he had a brother And these brothers were so devoted to one another, so close uh, to one another, that the city was named Philadelphia, which means brotherly love. And so the king of Pergamos founded the city of Philadelphia, and it was named Philadelphia, or brotherly love, out of uh, this king's love and affection for his brother. It was located along a major trade route of Rome that went to the east, And so it was commonly called the gateway to the east. But it also had many, many temples to Greek gods and to Roman emperors. And so it was also called uh, Little Athens because of all of the idol worship that was taking place there. Athens was known as a center of idol worship and of Greek gods. And so this Philadelphia was called Little Athens. That was a name for it as well. It was also devastated by the same Earthquake that struck Sardis in AD 17. Uh, In fact, they found out later that Philadelphia was located on a fault line and the city was plagued regularly with earthquakes and tremors, and there were so many building collapses. Uh, that the residents of the city got tired of dealing with the earthquakes. And so many of the people in the city moved out into farms right outside of the city. So the, the city had this weird dynamic where there were those that stayed and tried to keep it going. And the other places that, of the city that were just in shambles where it had fallen down and people had just evacuated and gone out to live uh, in the surrounding countryside. So let's pick up at verse three, uh, chapter 3, verse 7, where we left off last week. Revelation 3, 7 reads, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the keys of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. So what we've seen, we'll stop there for just a minute, with each of the churches as Jesus is addressing them, he has a specific designation or a way of describing himself to each church. And we've seen that he's very specific in the way that he addresses each church. And in the way that he describes himself to each church, it really has to do with their situation. So first we see it says, he who is what? Holy. Jesus is the Holy One. And so we understand that holiness is to be completely other than. It's totally separate than. And it's the idea of being unspotted, unblemished, clean. And our God is holy, and Jesus is holy, and he calls his people to holiness. And we'll see in the coming verses that Jesus was pleased with his church at Philadelphia. They had remained in a state of unblemishedness from the world. They had been undefiled from the world. Uh, Then also, well, we saw also last week, Sardis had not done that. They had become corrupted by the world, but the church at Philadelphia hadn't. And then look at verse 3-7 again. It says that not only is he holy, but he's what? He's true. He's true. We know from John 14, 6 that Jesus is the way, the what? The truth and the life. There's no other way to the Father except through him. And so Jesus is not only holy, not only is he one who is true, but he has the keys to David. And the church at Philadelphia, not only had they remained unspotted by the world, but they had remained true to Jesus, which we'll see in just a minute. But 30 as the keys of David. The rest of the verse expands on that. It says, He who opens and no one shuts. And shuts and no one opens. And What Jesus is doing here, I believe, and we'll see this morning, is he's really drawing to this message of Philadelphia. He draws from Isaiah a lot in this message to them. Specifically here... He's drawing from Isaiah twenty-two, twenty-two. Because if you think about it, if you're going through persecution, and Jesus is writing to you, and he's saying to you know he's the one who's holy, he's the one who's true, and you think okay, but then he says, and who has the keys of David? You'd, you'd be like, well, how does that help me? Well, we'll see. It's, it's relating to Isaiah twenty-two, twenty-two. Let me just read this. It says, "The key of the house of David, I will lay on his shoulder." So he shall open, and no one shall shut, and he shall shut, and no one sa- shall open. And so you see, obviously, there's a relation between Isaiah 3 and excuse me, Isaiah 22 and Revelation 3. But the greater story behind that was that um, there was a man named Elkim. and what had happened was the leaders of um, the people of Judah during this time of the writing of Isaiah, uh, they were leading God's people astray. The Assyrians had come and they were attacking Judah. And their leaders were saying, look, let's let's try Egypt and let's try this nation. And that's the leaders of the people of Judah were trying to lead the people into trusting in the arm of man instead of trusting in God. And God said, okay, I've had enough of this. And God called a man named Shibna that was one of those leaders to step aside. And God was raising up a faithful leader named Elkim. And so what God is doing as he's talking about this, he's saying that this uh, is he's going to get the keys to the house of David. So what God's saying is, I'm going to take this wicked leader, Shibna, that's leading you astray. I'm going to set him aside, and I'm going to give the keys to the house of David to Elkim. Now, the keys to the house of David simply means this. To have the key over the house of David was to have control of the whole nation. David was their king that they loved, that they looked back to from generations ago, that was a symbol of authority in the life of Judah. And so for Elkium to have the keys of the house of David meant that God was giving him authority over that whole nation. But we also understand the bigger picture about Elkium is that it wasn't just for him. He was actually what the Bible calls Well, not what the Bible calls, what we call in the Bible a type of Christ, like Melchizedek. He was somebody that was pointing to Jesus. And Jesus is the one that comes, like Elkium, that steps up and he is faithful and he has the keys of the house of David. And so Jesus is writing to them saying, I'm the one who is holy. I'm the one who is true and I have the keys of the house of David. I think what he's telling the church is that, look, I know you're going through some stuff. But I'm still in control, and I'm with you, and I'm near, and I'm going to take care of you. So moving back to Revelation 3, 7, Jesus is holy, he's true, and then what? He has the authority over the nations and specifically over what's going on in the lives of the church in Philadelphia. So Revelation 1, 8 reads, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, you've kept my word, and you've not denied my name. Jesus knew the church at Philadelphia. He knew their works. And in knowing them, what did he do? He praised them. He said, you've been found faithful. Philadelphia and Smyrna are the only two of the seven churches where Jesus says, I know your works, and he praises them, and he doesn't rebuke them. And both of those churches were undergoing severe persecution. So let's walk through verse 8. First, Jesus knew their what? Their works. Second, he says, I've set before you an open door and no one can shut it. So in the New Testament, in, in Scripture in large, we see that an open door is an opportunity. But in the New Testament, an open door specifically is an opportunity for the gospel, In fact, in 1 Corinthians 16, 9, Paul says this, A great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So what Jesus is saying is, hey, I know your works, and I'm proud of you, and you're doing good. And in fact, I've opened a door of ministry to you, and you need to get after it, and you need to stay after it, because I'm going to keep this door of ministry open to you. So lastly, let's look at the last half of verse 8. It reads, For you have a little strength you have kept my word and have not defiled my name. The church at Philadelphia, they weren't known as a large or influential church. In fact, part of their city was crumbled down from all the earthquakes, so they didn't have a lot of strength. But what did they have going for them? They had persevered in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. They had kept his word. I mean, if you think about this These are huge props that Jesus is giving this church. Because what does he say? He says, you've been, basically you've been faithful. You've not denied my name. You've kept your testimony intact. He's telling them, you're doing great. Who's like, good job. It doesn't matter that you seem small, that you seem weak. It doesn't matter that these other things are going on, that you're being persecuted. What matters is you've kept the main thing, the main thing. You've kept my word and you have remained faithful to me. And that brings us to point number one today. Jesus cares more about your faithfulness than your success. Jesus cares more about your what? Your faithfulness than your success. So what do I mean by faithfulness? Well, I mean that Jesus cares more about that? Well, they were a small church. They didn't have a big budget. They didn't have big buildings. They weren't movers and shakers. They weren't determining the, the trajectory of the city they lived in. But they were faithful. They had kept Jesus' word. They had maintained faithful to his word. And so Jesus says, look, you're doing great. Now, what I don't mean by that is I don't mean to say that faithfulness and success are opposites. I don't mean that, okay, let's lay faithfulness and success on the table, and you got to pick one or the other. That's not what we're talking about. We can take the life of Billy Graham even to illustrate this. You would say from a worldly perspective that Billy Graham was successful. In fact, Billy Graham was one of the most successful evangelists, most well-known evangelists of the entire last century. He had a ministry that was worldwide. Not only was his ministry worldwide, his ministry employed thousands of people. He wrote books, and he was even an advisor to presidents. So if you just looked at Billy Graham's ministry, you'd say... That was a successful ministry, right? But I don't believe when Jesus called Billy Graham home and Billy Graham stood before Jesus, that Jesus went, you know, Billy Graham, uh, you sure were popular. Well done, good and faithful servant. Billy Graham, you sure cranked out some books. Well done, my good and faithful servant. No, Jesus (laughs) said, well done, my good and faithful servant, because Billy Graham fulfilled what God called him to do. Now, was he successful? Yes. Was he well-known? Yes. Was he popular? Yes. But that's not why Jesus said, well done, my good and faithful servant. He said, well done, because Billy Graham had been faithful. He'd been faithful to what God had called him to do. And you know what, my friends? You can do the same thing. You can be faithful to what God is calling you to do. So let's move on to Revelation 1.9. He says in the next verse, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet to know that I have loved you. That's a strong verse, isn't it? Jesus is saying, look, I will make those that are persecuting you come and bow before you. We've looked at the synagogue of Satan a little bit before, but I liked what one author said about it. New Testament scholar Osborne said it this way. These Jews claim to be God's people, but since they've rejected this Messiah and persecuted his people, they lie and are not his true people, but rather belong to Satan. As Paul said in Romans 2, 28 through 29, the true Jew is one inwardly of the heart. So what he's saying is, look, the synagogue of Satan and those that are persecuting you and those that are slandering you, Jesus is saying, I know who they are. And one day they'll bow before you and they will know that I love you that's a strong verse look back at the last half of verse nine I will come and make them worship before your feet and then know that I have loved you there's a little bit of a, a problem with this uh, translation though it's translated in most Bibles as worship I'll come and have them worship before your feet in the Greek if you look at this word it, it has to do with a bowing of submission, a bowing of in submission, that usually it can be used of worship, but not always. Sometimes it's just used of a conquered people that are bowing before their conquerors. And I think that by this Greek word here being translated as worship in the Bible, it creates some confusion because we know that God alone is worthy of worship. In fact, when John falls before an angel in the book of Revelation, he says, don't worship me, worship God alone. So I think this is actually a poor English translation. It should should say, and I will make them bow before you. Because Jesus isn't saying, I'm going to have other people come worship you. He's saying, I'm going to have them bow before you. But, but what's the deal with that? Again, in order to understand the 66th book of the Bible, you have to have some knowledge of the first 65. And this is another reference to the book of Isaiah. And if we understand this passage in Isaiah, it will help us understand Revelation. Look at Isaiah 60, verse 14. Let me read this to you. Isaiah 60, 14 reads, And the sons of those who scoffed at you shall come bowing to you. And all of those, that's the word, and all of those who despised you shall fall prostrate, there it is, at the soles of your feet. And they shall call you the city of the Lord, Zion, of the Holy One of Israel. So here's what's happening Jesus uh, is drawing upon Isaiah to make a promise to his church. It's amazing. The people of Isaiah's day were being afflicted by the Gentile nations, and there was more to come. And they were being persecuted, but it was actually God's hand of judgment upon them that was coming. But what God did, it's it's interesting. Here's the big picture. God's people rebelled. God used Gentile nations to punish his people. But the Gentile nations were so harsh with his people that when his people repented, then God used his people to punish the Gentile nations that had been so harsh. It was this crazy dance that God had going on between these nations. But what God is promising his people is that those that are afflicting you, those Gentile nations that are afflicting you, that as you return to me and as you are restored, I'll have them come and bow before you. They will submit to you. You will rule over them is the essence of that promise. So what Jesus does to the church at Philadelphia is he takes this message to Isaiah and he flips it. And he says, you Gentile believers, mostly in Philadelphia, he says, I'm going to have the Jews that are persecuting you, they're going to come and one day they're going to bow before you. They're going to submit before you. We've already seen in the book of Revelation that as Christ reigns, we're going to get to reign with him one day. And so what Jesus is doing is he's saying, look, you have an open-door ministry. I've given you an open-door ministry. You have people that are against you, but stay faithful because one day you're going to reign with me, and those that are against you, you will see them bow. But don't forget the last part of Revelation 3.9. This is such an amazing phrase here. And to know that I have, what? Loved you. Isn't that amazing? Jesus is saying, They're going to know that I have loved you. It's almost another way of Jesus saying that I have chosen you. What an amazing promise. Jesus was going to take this church that was persecuted, that were kind of like down and outers, and he's saying, I'm going to raise you up. I'm going to have those that afflict you bow before you, and they will know that you are mine. I think this is, again, another reference. I love this passage in Isaiah 43. Mark this if you've never read this one. I think I've done it for scripture reading before, but Isaiah 43, verses 3 and 4, listen to this. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Sheba in your place, since you were precious in my sight. You have been honored and I have loved you. Therefore I will give men for you and people for your life. My friends, I don't think we will ever comprehend the depth of the love of God this side of heaven it is amazing to understand the love of God but we see it on display through the cross for God so loved he loved us in this way that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him should not die but have everlasting life so let's read Revelation three ten, and then I'll give you the second point for today Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell in the earth. So we saw in verse 9 that Jesus would give them victory over their enemies, and he would keep them just as they kept his word. But again, verse 10, they're told to persevere, right? Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will keep you from the hour of trial. And that brings us to our second point. Faithfulness is success. If God values faithfulness over success, we must understand it's not a choice. Do I choose faithfulness or success? No, it's God's value system is different. And what God sees is that as you are found faithful, then God calls that success. Faithfulness is success. You know, we talked about Billy Graham earlier, but let's get more down to earth where we live. What does faithfulness look like? What about the elderly couple where one has a terminal disease and the spouse is caring for their significant other? That's success. That's faithfulness. What about the single mom that's caring for her kid and working hard and providing food and clothing and bringing her child to church, a thankless job often, but she persists and she does the right things that she knows honors God, that's faithfulness. That is success. What about the Kids for Christ worker that gets done working and feeds their family and rushes up here to, again, spend more time with kids and invest in our children on Wednesday nights? Some of those kids being the only one in their entire family that comes to church and week in and week out that kids for Christ worker shows up and puts in the effort and prays for that kid during the week and is patient and faithful and is here. That is success. What about the youth small group leader or the Sunday school teacher? that works during the week and then gives of their time to prepare a lesson and to invest in others and shows up week after week after week, that's faithfulness. And listen, when God sees that, that is success. So I want you to understand that success is not just some big, glamorous, showboating thing. Most often, I would say, in fact, success is just... And faithfulness is just found in the day-to-day choices that we make. To either persevere, to press on, to be found faithful or not. But before we move on to verse 11, I want to explain what Jesus means in verse 10 when he says keep. Uh, Because those who hold to a pre-tribulational view uh, of Revelation believe that this verse proves that Jesus will return. uh, There will be a rapture of the church before the tribulation begins uh, but as always we want to make sure we're being completely honest with each verse of scripture look at the beginning of verse 10 because you have kept my command kept my command to persevere now before we go on anymore does the word kept there mean remove or does it mean kept and hold fast it doesn't mean remove because you've kept my word it wouldn't make any sense for that to mean remove right You with me on that? Okay, so context is key. They held on to it. That same Greek word that is used here as you've kept my word is used a second time in the verse, where it says, I will keep you from the hour of testing. There's no way you would translate that word as removed. And so I think that in some ways, at least in this verse, pre-tribulationists aren't being honest with this verse. Now, if you want to argue for a pre-tribulational uh, theology you can do it from other verses but kept here does not mean removed and that's the point that I want you to to see here but what is Jesus saying here well I think you have to go to John 1715 to understand this uh, you could turn John 1715 and I'll, I'll explain it to you as you're flipping there in John 1715 it's known as Jesus's high priestly prayer it's right before he goes to the garden. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be crucified. All of this is about to happen. This is bearing down on him. Jesus's prayer consists of what we consider three main parts. He prays for himself. He prays for his disciples that are there. And then he prays for all those that will believe in his name. And as he is praying for his disciples who are there, listen to what he prays in John seventeen fifteen. He's praying to the Father. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep, same word, but that you should keep them from the evil one. This is the same Greek word that we translate as keep in Revelation 3.10. So what's the significance? Well, it's absolutely significant. Because what Jesus is saying is there's stuff that's about to happen, and God, I'm not asking you to remove them from it. I'm asking you to keep them through it. And so if you look at John 17.10 and then Revelation 3.9, you do not see Jesus saying you're going to be removed from the trials that are coming. You see Jesus saying you're going to be kept through the trials that are coming. And why I would take time to explain that is because I think that that is a small, it's a seemingly small differentiation. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what word I was trying to say there. It is a very small difference between those two words, but it is actually huge understanding the book of Revelation. And here's why. It is very important to understand in the book of Revelation that God never pours his wrath out on his church. God absolutely pours his wrath out on the unbelieving world and the church is promised that we will be persecuted as we hold fast to God. But we are also told that if we will persevere to the end, we will receive the crown of life. And so it seems like small things to differentiate, there's the word I was looking for, between. But it's huge to understanding the whole theme of revelation. It's that God pours his wrath on the world. The world looks at us and basically blames us for it, persecutes us. And Jesus says, but you hold fast because what's coming is one day all those that are persecuting you are going to bow. Because the king is going to return. And when he returns, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So again, while it seems small, I really do think it's key to understanding the book of Revelation as a whole. You no, know, let's read, I need, I need to keep going here. Revelation 3.11. He says, Behold, I'm coming quickly. See what he does? He says, You hold fast because I'm coming quickly. Hold fast to so what you have that no man may take your what? Your crown. So our memory verse for the month. This is the first time of the message to the churches directly where Jesus' return is in a positive light. Because in other churches, when he's speaking to them about his return, he's like, you need to watch out because you're not doing good now. And you need to straighten some things up before I show up. In fact, in Ephesus, uh, he threatened when he returned to remove their lampstand. And to Pergamos, he threatened to return with judgment from the sword out of his mouth. To Sardis, he's going to return as a thief in the night. So here to Philadelphia, this is the first time it's positive directly to the church. He's saying, hold fast. I'm going to return. So to Philadelphia, he promises them not only his return, but what? A crown. This isn't a crown of royalty. The Greek word that we translate as crown is actually the victor's crown from the Olympian Games. So again, that theme of persevering, holding on because their victory was coming. Now look at verse 12, 3-12. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar. I'm going to give you our next point here in just a moment. I will give, verse 12 says, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Now, I know that y'all just sit around and dream about being made into a pillar. I know that's what you daydream about. But again, there's a lot of Old Testament significance to this. So let's, let's see what Jesus is saying. He who overcomes, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven for my God. And I'll write on him my new name. Now, what did he talk about? Three times, three times he talks about a name. Those who overcome will receive what? The name of my God, the name of the city of God, and a what? A new name. So what's the deal with that? Why, why would we care about that? Well, names represent things. So the name of God represent, uh, on you represents that you belong to God forever, The name of the city of God written on you, uh, uh, given the name of the city of God, means that you have a dwelling place forever. And the new name speaks of the newness to come, where God will make all things new, the new heavens and the new earth, where no one righteousness dwells, and there's no sun or or moon or stars, because the Lamb himself will be our light. But did you notice the specific reference to the church at Philadelphia because it talks about they'll no longer go out. That was a city that was plagued with earthquakes. It was unstable. You know what a pillar is? A pillar stable. Jesus writes to the church that was unstable, the the city that was unstable, where they had gone out to get away from the earthquakes, I'm going to make you stable and you'll never leave again. Isn't that awesome to see how specific that Jesus gets with each of these churches? And he loves them, and he knows them, and we're, we're coming to an end here. But again, I think this is a reference back to the Old Testament, specifically 1 Kings chapter 7. Solomon finally built the temple. Remember, David said, God, I want to build you a temple. God said, David, that's good that that's in your heart, but you have entirely too much blood on your hands. Your son can build my temple. So Solomon built this amazing temple. And as a part of building the temple, he had two huge pillars that were built. And the name of them, one of them was Jochen, which literally means he shall establish. And the second pillar was named Boaz, which means strength. And so again, what Jesus was saying to this church at Philadelphia, (laughs) you will endure. I will make you a, a place of prestige. I will give you a place of honor in the new kingdom that is to come. And that brings us to our third and final point for today. Jesus rewards faithfulness. And I don't have any problem saying that. Jesus absolutely rewards faithfulness. Now, does that mean that Jesus ever owes you anything? No. Just like I'm not saying you have to set success and and faithfulness on the table and pick one or the other, I'm not saying that if you do good, Jesus owes you something. It's not just simple cause and effect. But we do see in Scripture that Jesus rewards faithfulness. It's kind of like this. A child that you have, that you're training, that's done right, that you delight in blessing, you delight in doing good things for. You also realize when that child is not doing right, you have to hold back things because they have to learn obedience. We have a heavenly Father that loves us. We have King Jesus who is for us. And he delights in blessing his faithful children. So the thing about faithfulness, again, though, it's, it's not usually glamorous. Sometimes you might get noticed. Sometimes you might get bragged on. Sometimes you might inspire others. But what I have found about faithfulness is sometimes, actually, I'll back up. I would say most of the time in the experiences of my life, most of the time faithfulness Is simply showing up. Getting up, showing up, and being there. Day after day, being found faithful. It's lived in the little decisions, the sometimes tough decisions that other people just chicken out of or they're too weak to make or they don't want to pay the price for. But faithfulness is found in the showing up day by day, showing up, being there, presenting yourself to God and saying, Lord, here I am. Do with me what you will this day. And my friends, Jesus rewards faithfulness. So let's look at our last verse today. He who has an ear, verse 13, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I hope that you hear this morning God's call to faithfulness. I mean, it's hard to pass it up, right? He's saying, Look, I am faithful, you be faithful, and there is a crown that awaits you at the end. But we have to address this before we close. What if you've not been faithful? What if you've absolutely failed? What if you come here today and you're broken and you realize, I'm nowhere close to this? Well, that's what the cross is for. Jesus saw your unfaithfulness thousands of years before you were born. Jesus saw your every failure before he stepped down to this earth. Jesus knew every way that you would fail him, forsake him, and choose sin over his glory before he was nailed to the cross. And he did it all the same. He knew your unfaithfulness before you knew it. He knew the unfaithful words that you would speak, the unfaithful thoughts that you would think, the unfaithful actions that you would take. He knew them before you even knew you were going to do them. And still John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. If you think that your sin is greater than the cross, then you have a whole lot of pride to deal with. But if you will humble yourself and come to the foot of the cross and see the Savior that has paid your price, then forgiveness awaits you today. If you will turn from your way and look to Jesus, he has promised that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And just as he's going to fulfill his promises, and he fulfilled his promises to the church at Philadelphia, he will fulfill his promises to you today. So no matter where you're at, I hope that you see it really doesn't matter where you're at. It matters who he is. And if we will take him at his word, he will do miracles in our hearts, in our lives, that we can be a faithful people called by his name. Would you please stand with me? As we get ready to close our service today, I want to do two things. First, we're going to sing a song of response. This is our way of responding to the word of God, of praising God, of saying, God, we thank you and we praise you and we are responding to your word. And so it is truly a song of response. But it is also a time of invitation. We are inviting you to know the faithfulness of God. If you're here and you've never put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, we ask you to do that today. The Lord Jesus, if He is drawing you today, we say, Look, don't turn, don't harden your heart, but respond to Him today. Look upon Jesus and live. Place your faith in Him and know His faithfulness. He's already died, He's already risen, He's already promised He's gonna return. Will you take Him at His word today? I'm gonna pray, we're gonna sing. As the Lord leads, you respond. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you that you are faithful and you are true. I pray, Lord, that you would have glory given unto your name in these coming moments. That as we reflect and as we sing and as we're hopefully honest with ourselves about where we're at, that, Lord, we can look upon your faithfulness and find the hope that we need. Bless this time, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask. it. Amen.